At Anytime Fitness, we know that healthy doesn't happen on its own. With coaching and virtual options, we'll help you get to your healthier place. Join Anytime Fitness for only $1 this January. Visit anytimefitness.com for more information. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. It's always great to be saving money on your power bill, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. This is PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles. I'm on the road and coming to you from the residence of our Consul General uh, from the United Kingdom, who's based here in Atlanta for his station right now, and his name is Andrew Staunton. And it's good to be in your home and enjoying some tea and minced. Uh, tell me what I'm eating right here. Well, it's, it's a selection of things that you would eat in the United Kingdom. Uh, you have a cup of uh, Yorkshire tea with a splash of milk just to wet the whistle. And you also have a traditional, what we call mince pie. So that's mince meat. It's not actually meat, but it's like mince fruit. Yeah, and the gingerbread man? The gingerbread man was made by a former colleague of mine who is living in Washington at the moment. And she sent this via uh, FedEx to us. So this has come all the way from Washington, D.C. Mm, the gingerbread is really quite good, especially the icing. And what about the china here? You said that the cup was an official size. What do you mean by that? Well, as the British Consul General, I'm the British government's representative in the southeast of the United States. So every ambassador or consul general around the world, when we're carrying out official entertaining, we're provided with the same uh, cutlery and the same crockery. So that uh, when we... uh, when we host events and host friends and colleagues, that they get that experience as if they were dining uh, at uh, Buckingham Palace. Well, a lot of our young people that I work with uh, in the state, they have an interest in law or government or state legislature. But when you think about being a diplomat or in the consular corps, what is the career path for that, for a young person maybe who's in college and maybe they're they're majoring in international affairs. How, how do you how do you move in that direction? There are many career paths. I'll come maybe back onto mine in a minute because I joined the diplomatic service in 1987. So recruitment procedures, as you might imagine, have changed since then. But these days, uh, young people doing their undergraduate, particularly in the United Kingdom, when they finish their undergraduate, uh, apply for a job within the civil service. They can identify which branch of the civil service they would like to, to work for. So many of them do apply to join the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which is part of our diplomatic service. Uh, they have to go through a very competitive process. Those jobs are highly sought after. They might not be highly paid, but they attract a certain person who wants to make uh, a difference in the world, who wants to be a force for good, and whose motivation might not be their monthly paycheck. You remember Consul General uh, Thomas from Japan. He was uh, a close friend, and I dined at his house on a number of occasions. And he spoke French and Japanese, and he said that language skill had helped him a lot. He also had had to learn a lot about protocol. And is that is that the same for you? Did you have to learn another language, and did you have to learn about protocol, uh, you know, as a part of uh, as a part of your education. Well, just on languages, uh, Tim. Uh, this is my seventh overseas posting, and uh, as a result, I, I speak French, Romanian, and Greek. Uh, obviously, coming to the United States, uh, English is the the spoken language here, so there was no pre-posting training. But I think it's important. Language gets you only so far. It's important that uh, you also under the understand the culture, the motivations, the protocol, the how to do business. And I was very taken before coming to Atlanta. Uh, the BBC correspondent John Sopel wrote a very interesting book uh, about uh, his time in Washington, D.C. 
uh, which was basically titled If Only Americans Didn't Speak English, We Would Understand Them Far Better. <laughs> because I think sometimes we make, a, we make an assumption that because we share the same language that everything that we do, every thought that we have is, is uh, forged in the same way. So I found that a very useful corrective that language gets you so far. And to pick up on uh, former Japanese Consul General Thomas's uh, perspective, I think protocol is fine because you want to pay due respect to your host. But I think it's protocol squared, as I call it, where you really need to understand the culture, the politics, the social systems, the areas that are a priority for each individual country that you do work in. So, for example, you know, here's me, a Southerner. You know, I've been to Britain a couple, you know, a couple times, but uh, I'm eating a gingerbread man, right? So was there a right way to eat this gingerbread man? I started with the feet and worked my way up. I've I've taken one hand off. I've still got his head here. Or is there no special way to eat a gingerbread man? I think a, a gingerbread man, if we were in a polite company, uh, one might attack with a fork. <laughs> but uh, actually, if I look at mine, I've decapitated the head, removed the legs, feet, and hands so far, and I've just left the body. And I see that you're sort of working towards the, the similar thing. I remember those stories when I was growing up about what was the proper way to eat a Mars bar or a Milky Way. But I think uh, if you enjoy something, you should consume it with uh, passion, but in a dignified manner. You and I have talked before about the British newspapers and the British press compared to the U.S. How would you describe that to our listeners? Well, I think in the United States, in my experience, you given the size of the, the country, you know, 350 million people, the number of big cities, the number of separate states, there, there is much more of a localised news operation. You know, so the radio station that we're coming to you on today, yes, there would be a local radio station in the United Kingdom, but perhaps fewer. And if you look at the media, there is very much a nationally dominated media be that the BBC or the independent ITV or Sky, you know, Sky News, which is obviously part of the Rupert Murdoch franchise. But then if you look at the newspapers, which still many people in the United Kingdom do read that national newspaper, they're able to follow very clearly uh, what's happening politically and socially. But they do have an understanding of, uh, if you like, the editorial leaning of an individual newspaper where there's some would be seen to closer to the sort of conservative party and some might be seen as closer to the Labour Party but that's been blurred quite a bit because you know most uh, newspapers tend to try and have to be in that sort of central centrist position so people still consume a lot of news in the United Kingdom via the the national media. Let's talk about Covid for just a minute mm. but uh, because I do want to talk about uh, Boris Johnson's recent um, green policy that he's announced ahead of the COP26 conference coming to the UK. But let's talk about COVID and the impact that has had on the UK. I know I was in Virginia listening to a High Kings um, Irish music concert uh, mm. when they announced that the UK air air flights between the US and the UK was going to be stopped. This was back in March, I okay. guess. And um, and so they had to leave the country to get back to their family. Yeah. So they were canceling the remainder of their concerts and heading back. Uh, so uh, that was kind of fresh on my mind. My family enjoys uh, Irish music. So what's where, where are things in the UK right now with COVID? I understand there's maybe another strain or some issues going on as you all roll out vaccinations. Give us an update. Yeah, no, I also enjoy Irish music as well, Tim, having spent four years of my life as the Deputy Ambassador in Dublin, Ireland, uh, between 2009 and 2013. Obviously, COVID, uh, the United Kingdom, like many other countries, is grappling with uh, a virus that... Uh, is perplexing us, it's troubling us, it's affecting our population, it's spreading. It's a very young virus, it's spreading in, in different ways. We had some excellent news last week 
for example, where the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, uh, I think 600,000 people in the United Kingdom have already been vaccinated. We were the first country to approve it. And uh, a 91-year-old lady in, in England was the first person to receive the vaccine, not in its trial space. But then uh, our scientists, and we've been following a very scientific and data-driven uh, approach to that balance between uh, opening up the economy while protecting our people. Our scientists only uh, last week uh, started discovering that there was this new variant of the, the COVID-19 virus, which our initial evidence says it's, uh, it has an increasing transmissibility. So it's 70% more able to be transmitted through human contact, 70% uh, greater than the first uh, main virus aspect. That doesn't mean that it does you more damage, it hurts your health system. What it means is that uh, it's just faster able to be transmitted between humans. So as a result of that, our Prime Minister has announced a series of uh, additional measures uh, restricting movement, particularly from London and the southeast uh, to other parts of the country. And that's obviously very challenging as we approach the holiday season. So there have been people who are making plans for the first time in 10 months to be together, who are having to adjust those plans. We're obviously hoping that this, uh, this understanding of the new variant, we can get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible. We have the vaccines, we have the therapeutics now. So we're very hopeful that uh, getting through this search by people taking the appropriate actions about limiting social distancing, but you know, social distancing, washing hands, etc., are going to continue to be our best defences. But we have a lot more of tools in our, at our disposal. Well, when we come back, I want us to dive into what Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said about environment, energy is fascinating. We're going to look at the 10 things that he's trying to do. I think it's going to have some influence around the world. This is Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. GasSouth believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. GasSouth. The difference is good. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Green Power EMC. From the suburbs to rural farming communities, Georgia is enjoying the benefits of a more sustainable future through the power of solar energy. Available from 38 of Georgia's member-owned electric membership cooperatives, or EMCs, these not-for-profit utilities are harnessing the sun's energy to bring clean, renewable, and affordable electricity to 4.2 million Georgians. For more information, visit www.greenpoweremc.com or contact your local EMC. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, this is Commissioner Eccles. We're back on Energy Matters. Andrew Staunton, Council General for the United Kingdom. I'm sitting in his residence. I'm actually having some some tea and boy, this mincemeat pie. Is that what you call it? Mincemeat? Yeah, it's called mincemeat. There's no meat in it, so it is very vegetarian, but it's just that sense of uh, mixing up apples and you know, raisins, sultanas together, and uh, then it's baked. Uh, but that would be the traditional thing. And every every Christmas Eve, a young child would leave out a mince pie and a carrot for Santa Claus and his reindeer. 
Oh, okay. So the carrot for the deer and the uh, and the and the minced pie for Santa. That's a neat tradition. With, with I, also one other addition. Uh huh. A glass of Scotch whiskey. Scotch whiskey. <laughs> So I'm just glad that uh, local law enforcement doesn't uh, breathalyze Santa Claus when he's leaving a Scottish household. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wonder if we're going to hear a little bit about maybe biogas being made from reindeer litter for the future as we think about... uh, as we, as we think about this green industrial revolution coming around, I mean, I mean, how cool would that be? No, it would be really cool. I mean, in the United Kingdom, we're already sort of trying to be at the forefront of biomass uh, in terms of our overall energy mix. You know, we have a an energy mix that's based on nuclear that's uh, far reduced in terms of coal. In fact, uh, last year there was uh, five months of the year when not one pound of coal was used to power the United Kingdom, which is a dramatic step forward, uh, which is used based on nuclear, obviously natural gas, obviously offshore wind. So what we're trying to do is shift our energy mix so that we are far less reliant on fossil fuels. I guess it was three years ago that I went up to Selby to the Drax power station, uh, took a train up there and met with a plant manager. I was interested in seeing some of these Georgia wood pellets that they burn there uh, because they had had previously burned coal and yeah. they had phased most of the coal plant out to burn wood pellets. They still had one unit, I think, that was burning coal. But I guess by now they've completely phased it out. Tell our listeners about how valuable southern pine wood pellets are in the UK and why. Hugely valuable, hugely valuable. In fact, uh, since I've been here, I've, I've met with Drax Biomass on a number of occasions. Uh, they used to have their headquarters in Atlanta, but I think they've moved to Louisiana. So they import wood pellets from North Carolina, from Georgia, from Louisiana to the United Kingdom. And it, we see it as uh, part of the answer to that uh, requirement to be more green. And so the Drax uh, power plant has been I think you are right. I think it has phased out the last unit in the, the last period. But those wood pellets uh, are the material that they need. You can produce them in the volumes that are required. Uh, obviously, the United Kingdom, uh, many people might think of it as having many trees. But, you know, pine trees aren't quite as uh, able to be grown in the United Kingdom as they are in some of the, the lands here. We don't have that geographical space that you would have in some of the states. So... We, we think it's a very promising part of our, our approach. And what you're actually seeing is uh, many more homes in the United Kingdom are being powered by wood pellets as well. You know, that's pretty incredible uh, because we don't power our homes, uh, certainly not by wood pellets, but, I mean, you may have an occasional wood-burning stove that a person has and they heat their great room or something like that. But I know from traveling both to the U.K. and to Germany, there's some finely engineered home heating systems yeah. that have the proper amount of humidity and everything that you need to be comfortable uh, because my dad and granddad both had a whole home heating system for wood logs, but they didn't have that humidity right. And mm. it was always uncomfortable, but you guys have kind of mastered that over there. Well. I'll give you one example. I visited a friend who lives in the rural area of Wales. Very much, uh, very difficult to have natural gas pipe there. You know, for example, it would be very expensive because of the distance away from uh, main roads and other uh, other gas systems. So they've converted fully to their house, uh, which is uh, wood pellets. So they get two deliveries a year. They top it up, you know, uh, their their boiler, their generator, uh, you know, when it goes below a certain level, it, it's a very clean fuel and it's a very reliable fuel. And I think you're right, they've got the humidity right at this moment in time. So you can see that being an important part of the energy mix, but it's not... It's not going to be 100% dominant in terms of, you know, reliability. Uh, so we have to look at other sources, and that's why, you know, offshore wind, uh, looking at small uh, modular and advanced reactors, as well as large nuclear build, is a big part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to do as much as possible that nuclear is regarded uh, to be clean energy, embracing all of the technologies that uh, surround that industry. So we, what we're trying to do with our green industrial revolution is to be at the forefront 
of that technology development so that we maximise uh, as much as we possibly can all power sources of the future become less reliant on fossil fuels. But they we're actually also taking sensible decisions about how we make our homes, given quite a lot of the UK housing stock is quite old, more energy efficient, and also our buildings more energy efficient. We see an opportunity there to grow our economy. I don't know if you, you know, since 1990, the UK has cut our emissions by 43%, our carbon, our greenhouse gas emissions while growing our GDP by 75%. So we think that there are strong economic arguments around uh, uh, this uh, this green economy. And uh, actually at the moment, our green economy is growing three times quicker than our uh, normal GDP. Well, let's talk about offshore wind because it's the first thing on Boris Johnson's 12 billion pound of government investment plan and, you know, for our listeners in Georgia, I mean, we just don't see wind turbines because we don't have a lot of strong wind here in Georgia. Maybe off Tybee Island, out there off the coast, you've got some okay wind, but it's just not the case in the UK because you guys have some really strong wind and and Prime Minister Johnson wants to produce 40 gigawatts by 2030, supporting up to 60,000 jobs. Well, I I think that it's important to be ambitious, but actually the most important thing is by setting that ambitious target now, we really have to lean in. You mentioned the £12 billion of uh, public sector investment government money, but that we expect to be matched and actually tripled by private sector investment. So that will be three times that twelve billion pounds. So somewhere around sixty billion US dollars will be invested in support of this ten point plan. But you know the the ambition is that this forty gigawatts will produce enough energy to power every home in the United Kingdom. But that means we have to start now. Offshore wind is obviously has great potential. We do have onshore wind and offshore wind at the moment. So we've already been looking at. Uh, those aspects. We work very closely with Ireland. There's a single energy market with Ireland as well, uh, within the United Kingdom and and, uh, and Ireland. So we're working with our partners. Uh, we don't have as much geography in the United Kingdom. We are an island, you know, surrounded by wind. So that's where we see uh, a great advantage. Onshore wind uh, on occasions can uh, be more controversial in terms of uh, impact on the landscape. So we see that as a, a real thing that we have to lean into at this moment in time. Well, the second item I'm hearing more and more about, and that is hydrogen. Prime Minister Johnson talks about generating about five gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030 for industry, transport, power, and homes, developing the first town heated entirely by hydrogen at the end of the decade. So let me ask you about this hydrogen and about this this town. Has it been selected yet? No, the town hasn't been selected yet. Uh, And actually, this is a a stage process. so what we're looking at the moment is there's, uh, the government is funding a £30 million uh, pilot research study to identify how we can use hydrogen and water, I'm not an expert in, in all of these aspects, to produce enough power so that homes can be uh, either heated or the use of cooking, you know, that power could be used for cooking. So we're going to start with a small area. And the hope is that that small area will be in place by 2023. And then we'll try and have a hydrogen village by 2025. And then if that works, we would try to go to a hydrogen town by 2025. So it's a gradual process, but I think people have been looking at hydrogen as a fuel source lovingly and longingly for a number of years. And what we're actually doing now is investing in the scientific research that would enable us to have these ambitions that heating and cooking of uh, houses to villages to towns could be possible within the next decade and I would hope that others would encourage it because we are looking for those clean sources. The big energy companies in the south, Southern Company here in Georgia, Duke up in North Carolina and beyond and Dominion, all three of them are are actually working on hydrogen injection into gas lines now Mm. and Dominion has made the strongest commitment that by I think 20 25 that they will inject or that the gas system will have 5% hydrogen. So 
You know, I think what the UK has going for it on on this number two item, and uh, to me, it's it's the item I think that I'm most excited about is that if you're building 40 gigawatts of wind, yeah. and you're going to be overproducing on the wind, you can make hydrogen with yeah. that extra electricity through hydrolysis. And I think there can be quite a, a balance set up. So when we come back, I want us to get into three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on Boris Johnson's list here on his green industrial revolution. Stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure you receive the highest quality solar energy system in the industry. They're proud to work with you before, during, and after the install, blending customer demand, system capability, and expertise to provide the best service possible. Contact them today at 770-485-7438 or creativesolarusa.com. Tim Eccles for Marlin Gas Services. As the port continues to grow, more and more trucking companies are using natural gas in their trucks instead of diesel. Marlin Gas Services is helping to usher in this clean opportunity. With their specialized rigs, they create virtual pipelines with all the equipment and expertise to provide reliable, clean natural gas. Marlin Gas is the company that gas utilities, pipeline companies, and industrial facilities turn to. See MarlinGas.com for more information. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMVW Auto Sales. COVID-19 has changed everything, even buying a car. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, not only sanitizes every car, but you can buy it online and they'll trailer it to your home anywhere in Georgia and surrounding states. They've used electric cars, plug-in hybrids, and traditional hybrids. Check out the inventory at ev-hybrid.com. That's ev-hybrid.com. They have a three-day loaner period as well if you want to make sure electric works for you. Check them out at ev-hybrid.com. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. Welcome back to Energy Matters. Hey, we always want to help you save money on your power bill to use technology wisely and to live a more sustainable life. And we're talking with Andrew Staunton, the Council General from the United Kingdom here at his residence in Buckhead. Uh, it's great to be in your home today. Thank you, Tim. And I'm actually enjoying some English tea and uh, minced, uh, what is it? Minced pie? Minced meat? Min, mince pie it's called, Min but it's actually, you know, a minced fruit pie. Yeah, and actually it's quite sweet. Mm. This is uh, extremely sweet, um, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe the texture of a pecan pie. Yes. Right, without the the nuts, almost like the, um, the the kind of filling, the filling yeah. that's in it reminds me of a pecan pie. Yes. Have you had pecan pie? Yes, of course I have. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the gingerbread man uh, that I have, have now finished. And I know that you're all into protocol and everything, but I've got this one single little spoon here, right? So I had to eat that gingerbread man with my hand and the mince pie. I used the spoon for the mince pie. I mean, was that proper? I think, I think that was a failing on our part that we gave you the spoon to stir your tea with uh, oh. because you added milk to it and we should have probably given you a fork. But uh, <laughs> don't hold that against us. I won't, I won't sack uh, uh, the house, uh, household uh, team over it. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with my selection here. It's just whenever I dine or uh, have a snack with the Consul General, I'm always a little bit on edge, a little paranoid about my manners uh, because I wasn't raised, you know, in a in a rich home, and so I'm always kind of looking to the host for, you know, for a cue. Well, uh, well, Tim, just just uh, on that point, I'm the son of a firefighter, so uh, <laughs> uh, like myself, we we obviously and my mother made sure I was brought up uh, with uh, good manners, but. Uh, uh, we probably didn't follow every aspect of protocol. So these are things that you can learn. But actually, the best host is someone who makes their guests feel at ease rather than feel uncomfortable. So I hope you're feeling at ease. You certainly look at I, I am feeling at ease. 
Let me ask you, I mean, you're here in the U.S. for three years. Are we making you feel at ease in the South? Are you enjoying your experience in the Southern United States? Love it, love it, love it. Although, I, I mean, I think like everybody grappling with COVID, I, pref I preferred my first 18 months over my last 10 months because a big part of my role is to meet people face to face, is to get out and about and travel. So, you know, since uh, COVID, I haven't managed to go and see the mayor of Nashville. I haven't managed to, you know, go and see the governor in South Carolina, which was my normal, uh, you know, because people to people contacts are so important to the life of a diplomat. We're doing a lot at the moment via Zoom and other uh, platforms. And actually, we're reaching a lot of people, but it's just different. We're giving a lot of information. Uh, we're looking to build those relationships and partnerships. We're looking to really emphasize that at this moment in time, British-American collaboration is what we should all be looking to achieve. And the more that the US and UK can work together, and then the more that the United Kingdom can work together with the state of Georgia, the state of Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and the two Carolinas, the better in terms of uh, technology, in terms of business opportunities, in terms of people-to-people -people links. So I, I sit here in my house uh, and I joke to my colleagues that for the first year and a half, I was Consul General in charge of relations with the six Southeast states. Now I'm Consul General in charge of my study. <laughs> well, uh, I, I am also looking forward to getting back out more because Zoom can only go so far mm -hmm. in building relationships. Hey, let's jump back in to Boris Johnson's 10-point green industrial revolution. It's a 12 billion pound government investment program. We talked about offshore wind and hydrogen. Number three is nuclear energy. And as you know, I'm a big supporter of Plant Vogel here in Georgia. We will have uh, hot functional testing uh, soon. We've had the cold hydro. And I think before we know it, Vogel is going to be up and running. Yeah. No, I, I had a meeting with the Vogel team via Zoom about a, a month ago and was really encouraged uh, by what I heard. And you might say, well, why does that matter to you, Andrew? Well, I think about a year ago, we had a team of British officials from our treasury, from our energy department, who came out to visit Vogel because they wanted to see the practices around production to see if we could learn lessons. They wanted to see the practices around the financing how the project management was taking place. Because as, as I uh, mentioned to you and as the Prime Minister, we're looking at new nuclear build as well. You know, at, at this moment in time, we're looking at some of the licensing and uh, aspects around that. So and we're looking at how we work with those companies that are manufacturing it. So we learned a lot from there. But also we are, we're having discussions with uh, some of your utilities here about their plans about uh, advanced reactors, small modular reactors, because we need that nuclear mix in the United Kingdom. And part of the, the 10 point Prime Minister's plan is that the government will provide about 700 million US dollars to, uh, to look at small and modular and advanced reactors going forward in terms of uh, making sure they're a part of the energy mix for the United Kingdom. It was our hope that these AP-1000 reactors that we're building might catch on and go other places, but I do think you're right. The small modular reactors seem to be uh, more accident-proof and I think probably the you know the technology moving forward. I think I think there's also that licensing and getting the permissions and the environmental impact assessments, which you also have to be very clear-sighted about uh, and to understand that uh, our experience with new nuclear build and the, the big plants is it's very problematic and it can can take a number of years before you actually get that shovel-ready project. So we're looking to diversify into these other small and advanced uh, reactors. Yeah, people have, um, I guess, less and less patience with these big projects. So I do think that the smaller projects are definitely more feasible. So we'll see how that goes. I know that I had the opportunity to host those members of parliament and it was a special thing for me um, to have them in my office uh, ahead of their Vogel trip uh, because William Wilberforce is one of my heroes mm -hmm. and 
political mentors and the way that Wilberforce conducted himself as a member of parliament, being available to people, being generous, always trying to help others succeed, whatever they were doing, whether it was building a library or stopping bullfighting or stopping public dissection or uh, abolishing the slave trade. He was all about helping others. And so I really... I really uh, appreciated getting to know a few of your members of parliament. Number four on Boris Johnson's list is electric vehicles. And he wants to end the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and vans by 2030, 10 years earlier than planned, with hybrid cars to follow in 2035. And it will put the UK on course to be the first G7 country to decarbonize road transport. And I guess, Consul General, this was the one that that troubled me the most in terms of realism. Um, I just I just wondered if the British people. Uh, I just think about the black cabs in in London alone that are running on diesel. Yeah, I've been in an electric black cab, but. They're few and far between. I loved it, and it had air condition. It, it, it accommodated one more person, and I have the driver's email. And you know, when I go to the UK, I want him picking me up and, and carrying me around. So I'm committed to it. And I know you drive a plug-in um, Range Rover. Uh, so, but but are the British people ready for this? The British people are ready for it. Whether the car producing manufacturers are ready for it and the charging infrastructure is in place are obviously two of the biggest tests of the, this. But uh, I think that you mentioned the, the cabs in London. I think quite quickly the current diesel fleet will you know be phased out. Uh, the government is providing quite a lot of grants at this moment in time, you know, I think £600 million, so about $800 million in terms of incentives to get people to, to be buying electric uh, cars and uh, obviously taxis or taxi cabs as well. I mean, it is ambitious, but uh, I think you, you have to sort of dial back a bit and when we put our climate change legislation and our energy uh, legislation through the UK Parliament, uh, and our decarbonising of transport is really, really supported within the United Kingdom and Parliament. Very few members of Parliament opposed it. And that reflects the the situation in the United Kingdom where the, the public is in perhaps a different space and place to what's happening in the southeast of the United States where that debate hasn't been, been won yet. Uh, so we are expecting that the proportion of cars who, that are either electric or hybrid will grow over that next period. But in order for it to grow, the government has to also uh, really, really, really step up and accelerate uh, the charging infrastructure. So yet again, the government is putting its money where its mouth is, so about $1.8 billion US dollars to dramatically improve the charging infrastructure. 10 years is a short period. But you're already beginning to see that the large automotive producers, and I would also comment that if you look at the southeast of the United States, you have a wonderful opportunity here to be at the forefront of the new electric vehicle production uh, and to lead the US towards uh, ensuring that there are more EVs sold, driven and used here. Well, when we come back for our last segment, we're going to talk about number five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 and wrap up our conversation with Consul General Andrew Staunton. Stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your $1, 2 or $5 checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. ev hybridcom 
Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Better Tomorrow Solar. Imagine a world powered by sunlight. Imagine your home powered by sunlight. Better Tomorrow Solar has a passion for helping you see this for yourself. They've worked hard to overcome the chief obstacle to solar adoption, its initial cost. In some cases, they can install your solar panels at no cost, then charge a predetermined, stable rate for the energy used. In other cases, Better Tomorrow Solar has creative ways to finance the installation so the monthly payments are lower than the energy savings. Find out more at BetterTomorrowSolar.com. That's BetterTomorrowSolar.com and see how you make your world better. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We're back on Energy Matters. One final segment here from the residence of the Consul General, Andrew Staunton, here in Buckhead. He's uh, the UK's representative, official representative here. And uh, I want to just thank you for this delicious tea and the mince pie and the gingerbread today. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Tim. So if I had you at my house, I guess I would give you some collard greens, maybe some hot pickles, uh, I'd probably cook you some either barbecue chicken wings or ribs. I mean, how does that sound? Sounds great, but actually, uh, Tim, you've just given me a jar of hot and salty pickles with a picture of your grandmother on the on the thing, so I'm looking forward to uh, trying those. I suspect I might need some uh, yogurt to cool my mouth down after it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has habanero peppers in my grandmother's recipe, so I hope you enjoy that. Wonderful. Hey, we've got a lot to cover in this last segment. I want to jump back into Boris Johnson's 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution that he's rolled out. Uh, Number five says uh, cycling, walking, and public transport. And I know that cycling is big in the UK because anywhere I was at in London, they've got those bike lanes and people are biking after work. Uh, So it does seem to be really popular. But I know you are very excited about the public transport piece. Tell us why. Well, firstly, in the United States, my experience is that the car remains king in terms of people getting to, to work. In the United Kingdom, if you look at the city of London, you know, uh, I think six million people a day take transport from outside London into London. So we have a very good public transport network. But obviously there's quite a lot of uh, emissions that flow with that. So what we're looking to do in that public transport space is to have electric buses to look at our uh, transport mix to get people not using the car. So we've had things like congestion charges that uh, really work well in, in big cities such as London and we've really looked at that. But but what I'm excited about, and this is where I was talking earlier about collaboration, we've just had uh, a British company that produces electric vans and buses. First move into the US was it agreed a contract with UPS here in the heart of Georgia to supply 10,000 electric vans uh, to UPS so that UPS can change its fleet. About two months ago, it announced that it was creating or establishing its first factory in South Carolina, uh, employing 200 people. And they call them micro factories because they want these factories to be in different states within the United States. So they're not looking to create uh, one plan that employs 4,000 people. But then last week, they announced that their headquarters was going to be in the city of Charlotte to cover the whole of the US, again, bringing hundreds of jobs there. But the thing I was really quite excited about was as part of that decision, they've entered a strategic alliance with the city of Charlotte to help the city of Charlotte deliver its public transport strategy moving forward, looking at school buses, looking at uh, ordinary buses for the population to travel to and from work. So, so that's British technology coming here to help meet the needs of cities, the needs of business, and that's where I'm really excited about that. Well, that's that's fantastic. UPS is a a crowd favorite here in Atlanta, and I worked for them when I was in college as a as a driver helper. So it's a fantastic company. Number six on this list of ten of the green industrial revolution from Prime Minister Boris Johnson is Jet Zero and greener maritime. It says supporting difficult to decarbonize industries. I guess like like air travel and like shipping. Uh, to become greener through research projects for zero emission planes and ships. And this certainly impacts the relationship between 
the UK and the US because we have a lot of boats and planes going yeah. back and forth, don't we? No, no, we, we, we certainly do. I mean, I'm not suggesting that there will be an electric flight anytime soon, but what the government is doing is looking at future flight. You know, how will we travel in the future? Uh, so we are providing research funding to help look at uh, what are the zero emission planes of the future and what are the zero emission uh uh, ships of the future and if you look at the carbon emissions uh, air travel and maritime shipping of goods is where we have many many uh, concerns so it's right to be looking to see can we make that difference in the future by investing in the research now but I think you'll also find that airlines like Delta like British Airways are looking at future flight you know how can they make the planes that we fly in more efficient and you know the dreamline of the Boeing 787 already achieves a lot of those efficiency we need to keep doing more of it. Number seven is homes and public buildings making our home schools hospitals greener warmer more energy efficient while creating 50,000 jobs by 2030 with a target to install 600,000 heat pumps every year by 2028 is the heat pump not something that is in a lot of british homes are they using district heating or why why the heat pump uh goal here uh i'll I'll come on to that in a a second i mean this really gets to the heart of uh how do you have consumer ownership of the process around our climate ambition one is the way that we get to and from work or to and from uh, different houses around transport but you know the heating of one's home is something where if we make it more energy efficient and the British public have really caught on with this and have taken a lot of measures to insulate their homes better we've got a lot of old stock a lot of building stock and this is for us quite low-hanging fruit this is somewhere where the government can take interventions uh, by uh, ensuring that uh, uh, our homes are as efficient as possible that when you sell your home you have to have an environmental impact and a sustainability impact on that and you can take certain measures to to improve that the 600,000 heat pumps i think uh, is beyond my ability to answer you i don't actually know why that is but most of our uh, heating is actually done by uh, you know that sort of district gas so I, I i suspect this is so that each individual home becomes more sustainable and if there are a lot of wall units, as we would call them, wall unit air conditions hanging out of buildings, the heat pump is far more efficient. Yeah, yes. So so if you've got district heating for the heat and wall units for the air, then you've got a lot of improvement area you can make with a heat pump. Yeah. Number eight is carbon capture, uh, becoming a world leader in technology to capture and store harmful emissions away from the atmosphere with a target to remove 10, um, I guess, 10 million metric tons of CO2 by 2030. And we've tried in the South uh, a a carbon sequestration over in Mississippi. The Southern Company tried it and really threw in the towel and just turned it into a a gas plant uh, because of the difficulty involved. And if you think about the folks that are having success, they've got maybe some old oil wells or other things where they can inject that carbon into what it, what is uh, Prime Minister Johnson talking about here? Well, 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 I think this is where we're trying to ensure we don't throw in the towel. I mean, we've all tried it. Uh, we think that as technology improves, we have better chances of uh, the UK being at the global forefront of this uh, on usage and storage technology. So what we're trying to do is to identify what we call carbon cap capture clusters by the mid-2020s. So again, more money, government money put in there. So two by mid-2020s, 200 million of new funding to create these uh, carbon capture clusters. And then another two by 2030. Uh, So, you know, it's something that we really want to uh, go back, look at the science, look at the operational aspects and see if we can make progress. But you're right, it will, it's a big prize. So let's try and win that prize. We've got two more left in just the last couple of minutes here on the show today. Number nine is nature, and that is protecting and restoring our natural environment, planting 30,000 hectares of trees 
every year while creating and retaining thousands of jobs. Well, you know, trees are probably the most efficient thing for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So 30,000 hectares is a a considerable uh, investment. It will also uh, create a number of jobs around that. But the more we can do to uh, take measures that we know work to reduce emissions, the better. And the more other countries can also do in this space, you know, we, we do have to win this in a coordinated global basis if we are to have a successful approach over the next period. Number 10 is, when I looked at number 10, I thought, you know what, I can really see this happening. It's uh, innovation and finance, developing the cutting edge technologies needed to reach the new energy ambitions and to make the city of London the global center of green finance. I mean, I can really see that happening. Well, it will happen. I mean, London is probably one of the two largest uh, global financial centres. The United Kingdom government is going to issue a green bond next year. Uh, So uh, as part of our commitment to increasing the amount of uh, international climate finance available to £12 billion out of the United Kingdom. So we're really at the forefront of that. But you mentioned the innovation uh, word. And as we've gone through this 10-point plan, I think you can see that we're needing to really think about how we harness technology. We're really having to think about how we engage with the public. We're having to think about how we lead universities and companies and other governments. But the United Kingdom will not achieve this on its own. And that's why, you know, I'd just like to to mention this International Climate Change Conference, which is taking place in Glasgow in November 2021, which will bring together all of the leaders of... uh, Well, thank you for being on Energy Matters today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Tim, as always. And I hope to be at at, uh, COP26 in Scotland, and we'll look forward to our continued work together here in Georgia. Thank you very much, Commissioner, uh, and uh, thanks, thanks to the audience for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Happy Christmas. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com.